The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 30. That's right, number 30 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. HUB.com. So we had a great show last week. We had two guests on the show. We had the CSO of Newstar, Tom Pagler, and the senior vice president of Visa, Eduardo Perez, to talk about mobile, mobile payments and card risk and fraud uh, issues. So lots of great feedback about the show. I, I really liked having more than one guest for a single episode, too. It's not too often that we do that. So I think we're going to start doing a lot more of that. As a matter of fact, we're going to start doing it tonight. So I'll get to that more in just a minute. But before we get into that, I really found what Tommy and Eduardo had to say about mobile payments fraud and the advances in that space very, very interesting. I mean, historically, I consider this to be a big weakness in the cybersecurity posture of the United States. And unfortunately, at times, an easy source of income for terrorists to finance terrorist operations and anti-Western activities around the world. So they gave our audience some good historical perspective on our collective security efforts, as well as some analytics on where we are right now with the mobile payments and, and security right now uh, in the United States. So I got a lot of uh, good notes and a lot of nice notes of appreciation for the overview I did on the situation with Alexander Kogan and his relationship with Facebook and what the facts are surrounding his involvement with the Cambridge Analytica situation as well last week. So I did that in the first segment of the show. So if you missed my breakdown of Alexander Kogan's 60-minute interview, or, or my interviews with Tom Pager or Eduardo Perez on the second and third segments of the show, I urge you to find your favorite playback medium, find Task Force 7, and look up the latest episode. That's episode number 29, named Why is Alexander Kogan being singled out? And Tom Pager and Eduardo Perez appear on the second and third segments of the show, respectively. Check it out, folks. It's, it's definitely worth a listen. So the most common question I still get about TF7 Radio is, where can I listen to the show? Where can I get the playbacks of the, of the show? And so you can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7, you get all your options. Check us out, folks. TF7 radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. It's very important. Thank you. I appreciate you doing that. So if you're into uh, social media, you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. You can follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio, and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. So for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's George. Dot Redis at Task Force 7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. 
So we're talking about the insider threat on this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. We have two great guests on to give us their insights on the insider threat and give us some ideas, not only how to set up an insider threat program, but also what kind of technologies are out there to identify anomalous behaviors and, and provide you actionable alerts to weed out the bad guys inside your perimeter. So the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Technology Officer of Securonics are going to be with us tonight. The CEO of Securonics is Sachin Nayar. Sachin is a visionary in the security industry and a serial entrepreneur, having co-founded a number of innovative companies over the last 20 years in the areas of cybersecurity, risk management, identity management, and regulatory compliance. So Sachin is currently the CEO and co-founder of Securonics, and he drives the, the vision and business strategy of the company. He's also a renowned thought leader in the areas of risk, regulation, compliance, identity access, and governance, and he often speaks frequently at professional conferences and seminars. Tanuj Gulati is a thought leader in applying analytical techniques to detect cyber threats. He's a co-founder and chief technology officer of Securonics. He's the company that pioneered the, the use of user and entity behavior analytics, that's UEBA, for enterprise security. So Gulati leads the vision and strategy for the Securonics products. He manages the research, engineering, and product management functions at Securonics. And internally, he is known as the chief inventor for his pioneering research that has led to the company's most innovative solutions. So we're going to have both of these cybersecurity professionals on tonight's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Stay tuned. Sachin Nayar and Tanuj Gulati coming up on the second and third segments of the show. So let's talk about the insider threat and even what that means, right? And so in my experience, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So let's just break it down a little bit, at least for the conversation that we're going to have today. So according to Carnegie Mellon University Software Engineering Institute, the latest definition of the insider threat from CERT reads like this. An insider threat is the potential for an individual who has had authorized access to an organization's assets to use their access either maliciously or unintentionally to act in a way that could negatively affect the organization. So, uh, and that, that, that's an individual, individual who has or had authorized access to the organization's ac uh, assets, right? So now, that, that is an extremely broad definition in my opinion, particularly because it includes the unintentional acts of employees which really expands the scope of any insider threat program and organizations it decides to undertake. And just by nature, costs a ton more money to operationalize. So when I read this definition, I picture an endless stream of money just to create this highly bureaucratic organizational structure that produces a whole lot of nothing, right? I mean, so it, and that's just because of the definition and the scope of the program itself. So I think people have to be very careful when implemented, implementing their programs to, to not fall into this sort of trap and go down this rabbit hole. So CERT provided some rationale for developing this new definition by saying they moved away from attempting to enumerate what types of threat actors are considered insiders, what types of assets insiders have access to, and what types of harm could be done to the organization. Providing a generalized definition allows for these complex ideas to be expanded to meet the specific needs and priorities of a given organization. They continue on unpacking these broad terms outside the, of the definition of insider threat also ensures forward capability of the definition. So as additional threat actors begin to be considered insider threats and other types of impacts results from insider activities, this definition will still be applicable, which Folks, I, I don't know if organizations are necessarily looking to broaden the definition of an insider threat to unintentional acts. Nonetheless, they go on to say that it is important for these ideas to be expanded and described in the definition to ensure the scope of the threat is, and its potential impacts are understood. So I'm not totally buying it, folks. I'm not, I'm not necessarily fully convinced of this because it introduces a complexity into any conceptual insider threat operational model that is unnecessary and most importantly, in my mind, unfocused, right? It's not focused. So, it, but it's important that as we start talking about it, the insider threat on, on, on this and subsequent episodes of the show, that we're all singing from the same sheet of music, right? So as an example of what I'm, what I'm calling out here, I, herein lies the problem, in my opinion. 
on how the inclusion of unintentional acts into insider threat definitions starts to skew the facts and root cause analysis of malicious actors accessing data in critical systems of your network, right? So an article by securityintelligence.com from August of 2017 says that insider threats account for nearly 75% of security breaches inside your network, right? So I mean, 75% of security breach incidents as a result of the insider threat. I mean, right away, it's like, oh, big, big, bold words. Now hit the panic button. Oh, Now, for those of you out there not familiar with statistics around the insider threat, right? Generally, insider threats were thought to be low in probability and high in consequence and impact on your typical risk impact chart, right? So insider threat is much more of a concern now, more than ever before, however, and organizations are much more focused on the problem than they have been in the past. So nonetheless, as soon as I saw the headlines of this article, I knew there was something up, man. There was something going on because being in this industry for so long, I know it's not true. It's not true. 75% of security breach incidents aren't result of insiders, right? At least in the historical sense of the definition of a malicious actor accounting for the insider threat. Right now, now the article continued on with another questionable statement in my mind right out of the gate. This was the first paragraph, first sentence. CISOs and their teams have suspected it for years, but new security breach research showed that nearly three quarters of incidents are due to insider threats. <laughs> CISOs have expected it for years? Suspected it for years. Really? Who? What's CISOs? Show me where they are. I mean, I, I don't know any CISOs telling me that three quarters of their incidents are a result of insiders. I mean, who are those guys? Raise your hand. I don't see them. So I read on, and of course, the truth on how they're getting to these numbers imposes on the credibility of the article. And it says this, not all insider threats are deliberate. Now, usually when someone says that, you say, well, you have an 80% rate or whatever you're talking about, but not all of these are deliberate. In this case, let's use the same verbiage. And so this, you, would, you would assume that they say, you know, 5% or 10% of them are a result of something else. No, no, no. 84% of cyber attacks reported had been due to human error. So this says, specifically the sentence, in a survey of its attendees, organizers of the annual Black Hat Security Conference showed that 84% of cyber attacks reported had been due to human error, Computer Weekly reported, another magazine. So this could include failing to apply a patch, using easy-to-guess uh, easy passwords, or leaving physical devices in an unsafe area. Those account for 84% of your cyber attacks, right? So now just using the word attack continuous with human error in the same sentence is extremely misleading to me, right? According to the Merriam Dictionary, that the definition of attack means this. One, to set up or work against forcefully as to attack in an enemy fortification. Number two, to assail with unfriendly or bitter words a politician verbally attacked by critics is, for instance, right? To begin to affect or to act on injuriously, plants attacked by aphids, in other words. Number four, to set to work on or to attack a problem. And finally, five in chess, attack means to threaten a piece with immediate capture, right? So no, now, nowhere in this definition do I see anything that even remotely resembles the definition of human error. All right, it's not, we're not even on the same planet here, right? So what's more, the train really goes off the rails when they claim that 84% of these attacks include failing to apply a patch or using easy-to-guess passwords or leaving physical devices in an unsafe area. I mean, folks, as I just demonstrated, those are not attacks, and nor should they be defined as cyber attacks on your system. Just like in law, a person's intent is key to the definition of a crime. Intent, in my humble opinion, is also key when we describe the insider threat. So when we talk about the insider threat, we are talking about a totally different root cause than that of human error. Hence, the operational model set up to detect insider threats in most organizations is focused on identifying the malicious actor before they can do damage to your critical systems. So identifying malicious from a non-malicious transactional activity, right, is what makes identifying the insider threat so hard. That's what makes it so hard. So what, what I don't advise you to do is, after reading the article, especially if your CISO has been around for a while, is to go up to them and say, hey, boss, I have new news. New news, boss. Every time we fail to patch a system, 
That's an insider threat issue. We should include business models and policies to detect this activity in our insider threat program. I'm willing to bet that this conversation will not go very well for you, okay? So, so this time, folks, at least for the sake of the conversation that we have today, I'm going to have to disagree with the academics and the intellectuals in the space on this one. I think they've gone too far with this definition. And when we talk about the insider threat on this program, we're going to have a conversation and dialogue around identifying and mitigating malicious activity from employees or contractors who are given authorized access to data and critical systems. We'll leave the failure to use strong passwords for another discussion. I want to remind our audience that we're getting closer. We're getting closer to launching the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes for some words from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guests, the CEO and CTO of Securionix, Sachin Nayar and Tanuj Galati, to talk more about how to construct insider threat models to find the bad guys inside your network after these short messages. Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our guest, the Chief Executive Officer of Securonix, Sachin Nayar, and the Chief Technology Officer of Securonix, Tanuj Galati. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hi, George. Glad to be here. Great. So, great to so, be here, George. Hey, it's, I'm great to ha- it's great to have you guys here, and I'm glad you guys are here with us because we're talking about the insider threat today, and I know you, you, you both are very, very familiar with this theme. And so, Sachin, I would like to ask you, why are insiders so hard to detect? Um, thanks, George, first for having us today. Um, insiders are, are very hard to detect, like you said. There are a few reasons for that. First, there are no known patterns, right, in insider's behavior because it's all connected to a human. So there are, it's, it's not a, a three-bad password attempt is, is an insider. So there are no signatures. There are no real rules. So it's all kind of behavior-based, and there are so many different factors that contribute to this. That's number one, no signatures. Number two, most of these attacks now are low and slow attacks that happen over a long period of time, right? And, um, and, and most of the tools today are, are very transactional-based, right? That within, within a few seconds or minutes, if they cannot find the anomaly or find the find something that is breaking the rule, they move on. So they are not stitching together. Uh, the technologies are not stitching together users' behavior or anomalies over a period of time, which could, which could be months or years. So that's, that's another reason. And the third thing, 
we are now seeing is actually state sponsored actors we recently um, one of the one of our customers recently detected a an insider threat which was actually sponsored by uh, another country um and um and and they actually had trained the person over a period of time on how to act and how to take some of that data out so so these are not only are they signature less but they are becoming more and more sophisticated um is um, is is what we are seeing so so i think those, that would be kind of my analysis on why insider attacks are so so difficult to detect so would you say just to follow up on that real quick would you say that the sophistication that an insider has with the training of a nation state as opposed to an organized crime group is actually more dangerous because they're associated with the na- uh, the nation state 100 um what we also heard um what we've seen from some of our customers um where we've detected some of these attacks is 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 that these people have employment agreements with the nation state which clearly states that they need that they will get paid x amount of dollars to uh, to exfiltrate um certain critical data out to these nation states so these are very well organized these people are trained now they have access to a lot of tools and techniques that they never had access to before so this is not just your regular disgruntled employee these are now uh, they have all the tools techniques um of a sophisticated cyber unit uh, behind them so um so kind of much bigger and much more dangerous than we can imagine So Tanush, everyone is always talking about the cyber kill chain and sort of a lot of organizations are are, are somewhat obsessed with it in terms of detecting uh, external threats and internal threats as early as possible in the kill chain. But can you talk a little bit about why the insider threat kill chain is different than the kill chain that organizations typically use to map external attackers? Absolutely. So the the traditional kill chain right the one that was proposed by Lockheed and even the recent MITRE ATD and CK model they obviously focus a lot on the pre infiltration the post infiltration triggers that can be observed the different phases that you can observe to detect an attack with insiders the problem is that these individuals have already have access to most of the the data they already have access to to the users that have access to the data and they already bypass most of the phases in the kill chain so the indicators most of them come in the non digital domain which are very very difficult to gather and an insider threat kill chain needs to focus a lot on some of the the inherent risks that the users pose and some of the non digital uh, type signatures that can be observed on these individuals and then tying it to to the behavior based models that could come up with anomalies for for, for these regular users so it's very difficult for detecting insiders with uh, with a kill chain that is more in tune with with cyber attackers so this is this is key because i think when we talk about the kill chain you know the the, the typical uh, kill chain that we that we all discuss the one that lockheed introduced really has um really has steps and 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 procedures that detect an external attacker getting access to systems whereas the insider kill chain the insider already has access to these systems and i think that makes it much more dangerous in this situation right it makes it much more difficult to to detect right absolutely and the other thing is you know if you think about some of the the techniques that are applied to detect threats right the threat deception technologies particularly they apply so well to cyber attacks but you can't take a malicious ip or or a malicious indicators for insiders not that exists today so you know i'd like to follow up on that sachin you know how has insider threat detection detection capabilities changed over the last 10 years how how our capabilities evolved and the our ability to detect insider threats yeah i think it's come a long way but i will kind of preface it by saying that we still have a very long way to go so two things one from a business process perspective i see more insider threat teams now becoming part first there is more acknowledgement of insider threat i think it started after snowden where the board and the executives of organizations have started acknowledging insider threat as as a key threat to the to to their business as something that they do need to detect and mitigate um and uh, and because of that we are seeing more insider threat teams being aligned with the core sock being aligned as part of security teams earlier 
we would see insider threat teams being part of physical security teams or being or reporting up to the chief risk officer so we strongly believe that these teams should be part of the cyber security team and working closely with the sock or or be part of the sock um the security operation center so that's number one number two is from a technology perspective you know technologies uh, user entity behavior analytics technologies like securonix um have have come a long way because because there are because detecting an insider threat is very very different than detecting an external attack um number the first thing is you first need to correlate all the data that is coming in back to a user right um which is which is huge because traditionally we were we are just pulling in raw data and looking for certain rules to trigger none of that gets correlated to a entity or a user so now from a technology perspective all of this data needs to be correlated back to users customers contractors service accounts etc and then you need to look at their behavior analysis um you can need to conduct behavior analysis peer group analysis over a, over over a period of time and have longer time duration to detect uh, kind of changes in behavior and then compare them to their peers for those changes in behavior and then and look for those low and slow attacks and then you also need to increase companies have also increased their telemetry that earlier you know the the implementation of dlp was not complete so so you missed that entire data exfiltration piece and and in some cases uh, the telemetry around the systems uh, you know the implementation of high privileged account management systems was not there so we so from a sabotage perspective we need to get the logs from the unix boxes from the databases from critical applications so the telemetry has improved but we still have a very long way to go because i still think that that um, outside of the top uh, kind of the fortune 1000 or fortune 2000 companies we're still seeing a big drop in terms of their uh, their acknowledgement of insider threat is a key issue and secondly and and number 2 is in terms of having the telemetry and the tools to detect that so we've come a long way but i still think we are only 10 or 15% of our way there we still have a long way to go as as an industry so tanush let's break that down a little bit further even so what is the anatomy of an insider threat attack and what are the threat indicators professionals should be using to detect these attacks so george the, the interesting thing with insider threats is first defining insider threat as it exists right now so what organizations are when they look at insider threats there's a true insider threat which is essentially conducted by insiders and then there's insider threats which are induced or which are caused by insiders and because of these two in pieces the actual insider threat kill chain has changed quite a bit so the first of the insider threat kill chain typically starts with individuals that are about to leave the company or are disgruntled for some reason or in, in some terms are malicious within the organization and they tend to aggregate data which tends to be the phase 2 of, of of an attack or they could be sabotaging systems or bringing down uh, systems within the organization or they could be conducting fraud within the organization and in this scenario there's that inherent risk of an individual followed by some activity to to aggregate data or to reach systems and conduct the, the malicious action but the the insider threats which are caused by insiders which could be related to to either having just systems that that are vulnerable or just clicking on on emails that that could potentially put in malware those have also come into the realm of the insider threat chain and those are getting much more sophisticated because that's where there's, there's a lot of sponsorship from from nation states and criminal uh, organizations as well So Sanchin considering what Tanush just said about the anatomy of insider threat attack what what is the current state of security monitoring that we have today I mean how useful is for instance signature based security and insider threat detection Yeah I think I think that the traditional tools of SIM and other kind of uh, plumbing that we have done in the organizations is not going to help us detect insider threats like I said earlier insiders do not have signatures or rules the existing tools also do not have the correlation back to the user and this correlation cannot be recreated later on you cannot kind of laid on top because the ip addresses have changed 
So, so looking at the user, looking at their department, their location, um, you also need to bring in some, some non-IT related data, like sometimes their location, their time entry, their expense reports, uh, data on the user from, from companies like uh, LexisNexis or, or Experian, et cetera, and also sometimes their, their uh, employee uh, ratings. So all of those things uh, for Insider, you have to, you have to correlate the IT attributes with non-IT attributes. And within the IT attributes, you need user association and behavior um, models to detect true insider over a longer period of time. And none of that exists today uh, in the traditional tools. So that's, I think, where tools, the user entity behavior analytics tools uh, and some specific, specific insider threat detection tools are, are beginning to, to do a good job. But what we are struggling with is... Uh, is, is more data from the industry. So I think one thing if I had to ask on your show today would be for companies to reach out to organizations like us. Um, and even if you have anonymized data that you can share with us, because because WannaCry and, and Petya and all of these, these are not obviously insider threat examples. So so we, we, are, we, we are lacking some actual customer data outside of you know, our own customer sharing with us. So that's, that's what I feel where we are today. All right, so considering your comments there, how, how hard is it to create an anomaly-based detection capability in really large organizations where you lean a lot of large you know, amounts of data? I mean, how, it must be very difficult, right? It's, it seems like a, an uphill battle almost. It's actually, it's actually not that difficult, um, honestly, because we have done, um, I mean, now organizations like us, for example, Securonix, we've been in business since 2009, and with over 150 large organizations, you know, who are, who are using our analytics capability. I mean, we are working around the clock with our customers and partners, and we've built the behavior models already. We have built um, kind of a set of threat models already and, and, and have created a exchange where, which is like a crowdsourced exchange where our customers and our partners are uploading their threat models on a regular basis. And then in addition, I think the whole idea of a, of a behavior-based model is where, you, where it learns itself. So you don't have to continue to tweak it. So I think as long as companies have the telemetry or something basic to start, you don't need to, again, boil the ocean on putting all the plumbing in place because it's a chicken and egg situation. So as long as we can get started, I mean, we are, we are getting some of these things um, deployed in, in four to 12 weeks, depending on the size of the organization. And then obviously, there is some tuning that goes on as business as usual or the system learned itself. So it's, it's much, much easier than, than what it would look like. So Tinoosh, Shachin's talking about how much data companies like Securonics need to uh, detect these anomalies and these behaviors. And because criminals, especially insiders, have learned to launch these low and slow attacks that Sachin was talking about, how important is it to extend the time that we keep historical data beyond the typical 90 days that some organizations do? So I think there's two, two important aspects there. The first is from a detection standpoint for the low and slow attacks. Uh, the system that needs to be put in place is to capture the breadcrumbs from the data as it is coming in and keep those breadcrumbs around to stitch them together to find an attack pattern which is low and slow. It's very difficult to go back more than you know 90 days, 20 days when you when you're collecting 20 terabytes or more of data a day and trying to stitch it together. So really, the system needs to to find the breadcrumbs in real time, the anomalies in red in real time, but perform the stitching on uh, on these things on a, on a much more longer term scale. But you know, for for really going back when when a new uh, sort of a new hypothesis comes into play and using that over long term data. That's when that extremely large data set keeping it around is useful, right? So I think both those things are extremely critical, having something that can do stuff real time, but also having the ability to go over the data, uh, you know, post collection to find some of those batched analytics and run batched analytics on that data. So gentlemen, we're going to have to take a short break to hear from our sponsors right now, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from the CEO and CTO of Securonics, Sachin Nayar and Tanuj Galati after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our guest, the CEO and CTO of Securonics, Sachin Nayar and Tanuj Galati. So, Tanuj, I want to go back to you. I want to talk a little bit um, about the success that people are having and detecting insiders solely dependent on a company's ability to store this massive amounts of data. Because we were talking about the importance of storing the data. And in some sense, it's, you know, uh, a lot of data means it might make it easier. But in a lot of, and I think in a lot of sense, what I preach to a lot of people, talk, more data isn't exactly better. You have to have the right data um, to actually detect these types of things. So in your mind, you know, it, it, how, how effective are we and how, how successful are we, in, you know, in storing massive amounts of data over long periods of time and in, in detecting these breaches? Right. So, George, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. We talk about having a lot of data versus the right amount of data, right? When we think about insiders and the indicators we want to catch on these individuals, the typical data sources that companies have captured for their, for their SIM or their loggers is not enough to detect insiders, right? It's very important to understand that to detect insider threats, it's very, very important to have sensors on a lot of the exfiltration channels that typically organizations don't monitor. Also, the, the applications that people have access to, the databases that people have access to, it's so critical to have sensors to, to gather data on the audits and the activities that are happening within these systems. So to your point, it's, it's important to have the right type of data. And of course, it's important to ensure that when you're gathering the data, the, the context that needs to be added to the events at the time of ingestion is added at that point itself. Just because, you know, what Sachin talked about earlier of adding that user context to every activity that's coming in, very difficult to, to do that after the fact, right? An IP address uh, relationship to a user changes, the departments change for individuals, people get transferred, uh, people get terminated. It's important to add that context to the events as they're being brought in and then running analytics on top of that data. That's where a successful insider threat program uh, would require. So, Sacha, when people are building these insider threat programs, a lot of times there's already tools in place that can contribute to the success of the program itself. So how do like trade surveillance tools and anti-mundering laundering tools fit into the insider threat detection space? Yeah, great question, George. So, you know, when we detect insider threat, you're getting raw data, email addresses, proxy logs, Active Directory data, etc. Plus, you're also getting kind of process signals or risk data, right? So, I think I think when companies have some of these tools in play, like you said, anti-money laundering or other kind of surveillance data, which is in some cases already analyzing a lot of transactions, has some 
built-in domain capability and can give us um, kind of a set of risky users or a set of risky transactions, we can use that um, as uh, or organizations can use that as, as kind of key risk indicators and build. And then when you see a key risk indicator like that, then they can reduce the, the, the possible deviation from behavior of that user. So kind of think of it as creating dynamic watch lists of users when, when they're flagged by some of these systems and, and not just anti money laundering, but also some of the new endpoint technologies are, are quite advanced in, uh, in detecting um, malicious activity. And, um, and then we kind of build those as, as dynamic watch lists and, and then look at the behavior of the user across the organization and in the cloud, um, you know, based on that. So, so they help us a lot. However, I, I still see organizations have silos between anti money laundering um, and insider threat or the SOC. So I would like to request organizations to, to look at this insider threat problem holistically. Um, we are still not looking at it holistically and, uh, and share the data, all of this other telemetry and, uh, and critical systems that you put in place or organizations that put in place are critical to come together for us to truly detect this very difficult um, kind of the insider threat um, solution. The last element I would like to say is I would also encourage organizations to think of a single platform that can help detect both insider threat and anti-money laundering and fraud. And, um, and I think some of the solutions in the market today like Securonix can go beyond uh, just the IT-based insider threat and can also uh, help organizations detect fraud and anti-money laundering and organizations can look at them together as a single platform. So I do want to ask you about that, and I'll throw this out to either one of you guys, either one of you guys, or both of you guys for that matter. Can you guys talk a little bit about the, the sniper security data lake at Securonix and how that works? Because I just find that very interesting, and I think our listeners will too. Yeah, so I think from our, yeah, so I think from our perspective, um, what, we, what we believe is organizations need a very scalable system where they are not paying by the amount of data. Uh, because data is obviously commodity, data is growing every day. So you need a scalable system, which is cost effective, where you're not paying the vendor by the data and you and it is built on open standards. So you own the data and you build. So that is where first and foremost, we think Hadoop is the technology that uh, that organizations need to look at. It's it's open, it's scalable, and uh, and and the cost the the cost models around Hadoop are under control. Um, so, but but the catch with Hadoop is that it is not a packaged product. You know, outside of what a Cloudera or a Hortonworks gives you, there is no cybersecurity application on it. So that is what Securonix has created: a complete end-to-end cybersecurity application on top of Cloudera and Hortonworks, which includes building, providing all the connectors for you to build the data lake, all the enrichment of the data so we can detect all the advanced cyber and insider threats and um, and and then being able to search that being able to build behavior models on that or tools or charts and tools on that as well as do orchestration on top of that so so that's kind of what we have brought together but what organizations the benefit that organizations get is if you are a, a already building your enterprise data lake then think of this as a security data lake that can plug into your bigger enterprise data lake. If you are not on that path already, then you can just get the solution uh, kind of completely shrink-wrapped from, from Securonix, for example, and, and then over a period of time, at least you know there is the power of Hadoop underneath, and Securonix provides support for not just our application, but the underlying Hadoop infrastructure. And then you can you know, slowly, slowly build out an enterprise data lake. The benefit is huge. You own your own data. And uh, you have a ton of talent out there that knows how to work with this data. And you can, you can plug in different algorithms or different analysis on top of the data that you collect. The data is not sitting in a, in a vendor proprietary format. So I think, I think it's a game changer that organizations need to look at. So is this why when you guys say that it's not as difficult as one would imagine uh, to mine this very, very large amount of data that these organizations currently have to find malicious events because of this new technology. So basically saying, hey, look, the technology exists. And I think, you know, some people in the insider threat space might be very familiar with this, 
But the fact of the matter is that I think a, a good portion of our audience probably isn't. I think they probably find this very interesting to know that this technology does exist to mine this large amount of data and to come out with uh, results that are actionable and not just always false positives. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the combination of big data slash Hadoop plus machine learning uh, plus knowledge, um, kind of 10 years of our knowledge and our customers' knowledge and our partners' knowledge that has come together um, in this. So you, so you basically have the pieces of a very scalable infrastructure and we have, and then machine learning where we have approached the problem differently. We're approaching the problem from an analytics perspective. That is why we are enriching the data at the time of ingestion and, and then have all these analytics that have been built over a period of time. Uh, so yeah, so technology exists today and, uh, and for some specific use cases um, and the threat models exist today which are tied to specific use cases around data exfiltration, high-privileged account, cloud analytics, advanced cyber analytics like beaconing and lateral movement and all of those exist today and then we, have, we are partnering with customers and other organizations to build advanced fraud models um, as we speak. So uh, yes, the technology exists today and, and organizations can see value within weeks um, of deploying this technology. So, so Sachin, let's talk about one of the, the biggest insider threat events in history and that's the, the Snowden event. Was the Snowden event preventable in your mind? I mean, in, in other words, should Edward Snowden have been detected as a malicious insider before he was able to do all this damage? Yes, 100%. So, you know, we have spent tremendous amount of time on uh, kind of analyzing the anatomy of that attack, right? So there, are, there were many, many signals um, in that. You know, first, there was some, from an HR perspective, kind of a non-IT um, signal. There were, there were organizations that, um, that, that had marked Snowden as being kind of on a, um, on a, on a watch list that could have been picked up. Secondly, he was spending way too much time in the office than his other peers. Third, he was uh, downloading this data in a low and slow manner on a, on a regular basis, and uh, and which we could have easily detected with with behavior analytics. So there are there are a lot of similar indicators that um, that could have been picked up uh, by by tools. And like I said, we work with with uh, with with folks in the government and have had many discussions with them on figuring out uh, this piece. So if, if people want more details on, on the Snowden attack, there are, there are many um, articles and videos on our website on securonics.com for people to refer to, but, but, but 100% um, Snowden uh, attack would have been picked up by, by the technologies we are talking about today. So, uh, you know, Tanuj, another uh, interesting article just came out recently uh, uh, regarding Apple. So uh, I know you're, obviously this is your business, you're very familiar with this. What's your reaction to the new revelation that Apple has had 12 employees, 12, arrested over the course of the last year for leaking internal information about future software plans? I mean, it show, it, should this be considered a, a, you know, leak, whether it was leaked, in, leaked you know, uh, intentionally or not, right? Should, should this be considered a, a success of an of a insider threat program? Well, I think first off, I would like to congratulate Apple to, to detect these insiders. But at the same time, you can imagine how concerning it is when, when a, such a secretive organization like Apple, where the culture exists to maintain those secrets and the controls exist to, to keep those secrets inside, when they have these kind of attacks, how wonderful other organizations are that do not have the secretive culture. Like there's several organizations that we talk to that have a that that have a very high degree of concern around keeping these controls, right? Putting these controls in place because they believe that would hamper the progress of the organization and the trust level that they have with their employees. Right? But with Apple, when this happens, that's probably a red flag for for these organizations to know that it, it is so critical to to have those controls in place right now. So, Sachin, getting back to you and keeping it recent with some of the most recent news on insider threats. I mean, SunTrust Bank has recently announced that they had up to 1.5 million customer accounts compromised by an insider who was working with a third-party criminal organization. And we talked about this 
a little bit earlier on in the show. When employees work with criminal organizations, does it make their criminal mischief harder to detect? Yeah, absolutely. You know, now, you know, you have a, a business person, a researcher, an accountant, you know, somebody core to your business who, who knows the business extremely well, is well trusted by your teams, but usually wouldn't have the IT and the cybersecurity knowledge is now, is now supplemented with other folks who, who are professionals at doing that and can walk the person and teach them both the technical side of the business as well as the social engineering, which is, which is even more harmful, right? Cases we have seen is, uh, is, is not where this, this uh, kind of this, or this, this insider is trying to use, uh, use advanced technology, but they are mostly using social engineering skills, asking their friends, their colleagues for access to certain files, access to certain critical data and using different reasons to get that. So um, it's very, very, very difficult to detect. And, and I think, I mean, I think in the past, many organizations uh, have heard about, you know, external kind of nation states hiring these individuals and maybe we thought they were kind of a fantasy or bad fantasy, I mean. But, but this, is, this is the truth. I mean, we, are, we, we, we saw it at SunTrust. We've seen it some of our other customers. There is, I think this is the next big wave of attacks that can hit hit our, our hit the US and kind of other key economies if not uh, if not dealt with immediately so guys I'll throw this this next question out to either one of you because it has to do with privacy laws and and some legal considerations and and I know this has been this is this is one of the major hurdles and major challenges for some of the large organizations that do business internationally with privacy laws being so strict in some of these places and the data privacy regulations seemingly just getting stricter and stricter as as the as the days go by how how do we balance privacy against insider threat detection yeah i think i think privacy you know there is there is a there is definitely obviously there's a need for privacy um, GDPR um, has taken that to the next level. There are there were always the workers' councils sitting in European countries that were very careful about uh, any data that you are monitoring and would ask and still ask a lot of questions around it. You know, Canada has uh, also a set of pretty strong privacy regulations. But but I think number one, I don't think organizations need to worry about and not do the monitoring because of privacy. We have worked with several organizations and we have deployed uh, these insider threat programs globally with them. I think the privacy organizations are quite reasonable. Um, when we, but there is a method to the madness. You have to go and explain to them the data that you're gathering, the purpose of every data element that you're gathering. Number three, how much of it is TII? And uh, number four, that you're not looking at doing a behavior of the user from an HR perspective you're looking at doing a behavior of the account or the IT side um, of, of the house, right? And then, and then if you find issues there, then you kind of augment it with the non-IT side. And number uh, four, uh, which is most critical, is that you're masking or encrypting the data um, for the level one or the tier one analyst. So when a level one analyst looks at the data, they do not know the identity of the user and they cannot just go and start searching for a user to kind of look at their work patterns. So only when a, only when kind of the SOC analysts, uh, tier one or tier two, find that there is an actual issue to be investigated, then the process usually, then they reach out to the privacy leader uh, within those countries, and then the privacy leader approves that transaction for that particular user only, and for that particular analyst only, uh, for a duration of time. And that's when you can unmask or unencrypt that data. So that workflow of, uh, of masking or, en or encrypting the data and then reaching out to the privacy uh, leader to get an approval and then auditing the entire transaction, that is a very, very key requirement um, in privacy and you know, GDPR and other regulations and, and Securonic, at Securonics, we have been working closely with several of our global customers to implement that and we have never ever had an issue where we had to stop monitoring or monitor less because of privacy, um, because of all the other controls that we put in place that, uh, that balance privacy with security. 
So, so Tanush, I want to get back to you as sort of a technical question in terms of the technology that's available in the insider threat detection space. I, w- I want to ask you, how important is user sentiment analysis in insider threat detection? And does this technology even exist today? That's a great question, George. So, you know, one, one of the key elements to, to that threat chain that we talked about earlier was what we call the inherent risk uh, indicators on an individual, which tend to, to give us a very good perception of whether the person is disgruntled or I've had a, uh, some other indicators uh, indicating a bad experience with, with the organization that he's working with. And sentiment analysis technologies are, have been, you know, they've been out there for a while, but recently they've, they've actually started giving out really good information especially if we are able to track it to the social media aspect of the individual and take all those, the Twitter handles and the Facebook profiles and, and bring all that context to, for the person back to the organization. Because this is publicly available information. And if you're able to harness that, we can actually do a very good predictive analysis on insiders within organizations. Uh, so it's, it's not 100% there, these technologies. They obviously can't uh, give a very good indicator completely on, on the sentiment. Because for the most part, you know, people tend to provide bad, uh, only the bad experiences online. But if done correctly, they, they can add a level of prediction that is very valuable to an insider threat program. Interesting. So, so Sachin, how important is intelligence to an infector insider threat program? It's hard to gather intelligence on, you know, on, on employees inside a company. It's different than external intelligence, right? I mean, how difficult is this and how important is it to be successful with your insider threat program? Yeah, I think, you know, great question uh, again, George. You know, insider threat intelligence, I, I haven't seen it exist really in any real shape or form, right? There is um, actually not in an organized manner. I would, let me take that back. There are there are times when we have seen when HR or other parts of the business um, know that, you know, people have internally reported that oh somebody is kind of doing some suspicious activity, and uh, and other people know uh, of that, and how they can come in and um, and report that, um, and and you know we can create uh, these watch lists. So that has been extremely extremely effective. So I think I would like to encourage companies to to roll out programs where uh, where you create these anonymous um, email addresses or, or hotlines for um, for you know, your employees to report these kinds of scenarios also also educate the executives um, and, you know, kind of two or three levels down when you have an M&A activity, uh, you know, to kind of report that because we've seen a lot of uh, employee uh, sentiment change during that process, uh, you know, once. Uh, so, uh, so the inter- insider threat intelligence is, is, uh, is, is very, very valuable but it is, it is very hard to obtain it. And I think we need to create uh, both uh, companies as well as vendors like us need to do more work in terms of enabling that um, in the industry. So guys, we're getting short on time, but Sachin, I want to squeeze in one more question. What other aspects of an insider threat program should companies have that we haven't spoken about? I think overall, first and foremost, I think we do need an insider threat leader in, um, in organizations, I think most of the times I'm still, we are still seeing that that role, you know, we actually saw more insider threat leaders three years ago than we are seeing now. A lot of times that role is getting merged into the SOC and, um, and the skill set and the mindset is very different. So first and foremost, I would like to request organizations to, to think about having an insider threat leader. And usually that is a person who has been part of your either security team or identity management team, or part of your risk team, uh, where who you kind of designate to be that. Secondly, look at look at technologies. Ask your current monitoring solutions and tools to see how they would tackle insider threat. Um, also, evaluate some of these new generation UEBA user entity behavior analytics technology, and you know, kind of put them to the to to the task, right? And bring them in, do a, a proof of concept, and see how if it would work in your organization, especially as organizations move towards the cloud, you know, the network, as we all know, the network controls don't exist. The perimeter controls don't exist. So there is a, there is a huge, huge, huge exposure from a cloud perspective, right? I, I really 
believe that in the next few years we will see some of the biggest hacks and attacks happening in the new infrastructure as a service uh, on these platforms. You know, we already started seeing um, S3 buckets and other things within Amazon getting compromised. I think if 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 my um, infrastructure is reliant on one of these um, solutions, then you know I am worried because within 30 seconds somebody who who hacks into my administrator's credentials or 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 a rogue administrator can bring down my entire data center within 30 seconds, right? And can put it in a shape where it can become unrecoverable or unrecoverable for days. So I think the the cloud piece, the, the setting up of the organization and looking at some of these tools and technologies which which are easier to, to deploy than organizations um, think, I think are the three kind of the legs of the stool that I would really like to uh, encourage companies to think about. So, gentlemen, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show, guys. I mean, this is a really interesting topic. The audience is going to love it. I really appreciate you coming on and hope to have you back again soon. Yeah, thank you, George, for including yeah. us today. Um, I mean, I think cybersecurity needs more professionals like yourself spreading the word. So thanks again. Uh, really, uh, really appreciate it and honored to be here. Yeah, thanks, man. Second that thought, George. Thank you. Hey. I appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. We've run out of time, folks. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 